Hello and welcome to Future Imagined, a foresight podcast all about the future. We started the season discussing the future of the biggest market in the world with the future of America. We followed that up discussing some of the fastest growing developing markets with the future of emerging markets. Our latest exploration was on one of the most established and innovative regions, Europe. And as we dive deeper into more parts of the world, we want to pause and talk about the futures influencing East versus West markets. So today we'll contrast and compare, discussing the similarities and the differences between our East and West cultures and the most influential drivers within them creating future possibilities. To do that, I have a brilliant co-host with me today, our Foresight Lead for China. Welcome, Leanne. Hi, everyone. I am Leanne Kwan, Foresight Lead for the China region from Maastricht. I just moved back from Chicago and now stationed in Hong Kong. After seeing both sides of the world, I'm really excited to this episode and talk about the differences and commonality that we see in the both sides. To explore this topic, we have not just Leanne, but two brilliant experts in the conversation, helping to stretch our thinking from Europe to the US to China and a little of what's in between. I'm Martin Scheer. I work at Localities, a database and research firm totally specialized in lifestyle, the sociocultural context of a brand, how to adapt it to lifestyle, how to adapt it to the values. We are so attuned these days by media to look at what separates us and what makes us different, but also what unites us. And that is something that falls a little bit by the wayside. So I want to really focus on the differences between the markets, but also to see where the markets are more similar. My name is Judy. I'm a managing partner at Inner Chapter based out of Shanghai. Our work really spans across insights, foresights, and a lot of innovation streams in which we do both qualitative but also quantitative. You know, how does that kind of play out on a more textural level or even like in a cultural level instead of only looking at maybe harder, more factual kind of economic GDP type of statement, consumption type of numbers. Really want to bring in some like more human texture to the conversation and also to this comparison of differences and similarities across East and West. Amazing. A wealth of experience in the room here and truly that expertise that's very much global. So today we're going to be exploring this topic from a few different perspectives, generational motivations, shaping culture, the influence of national versus local or regional makeup of different parts of the world, and the pace of innovation change. We have a truly global conversation on our hands and a truly global panel and a global audience. So to kick off today, let's celebrate just that. Most of you know, I recently moved to the United States from Australia. So g'day. But I was born in Poland. So witamy każdego z Polsce. Naprawdę jest mi miło powiedzieć dzień dobry po polsku. Tak dla was. And I'm also learning Russian. So I will say привет naszym друзьям w Rosji. Martin, I know that you also speak Polish. Mówię po polsku, ale to jest trochę trudne dla mnie teraz, so lepsze jest, jak ja mówię po holandersku. Also, Gili speaks a bit of Dutch as well. Goedemiddag iedereen. Ik hoop dat jullie veel leren van onze podcast en van onze gasten. And I can also speak a little bit of Romanian. Bonne ziua. Sper, ka chaste podcast, bafi frumos, pento tutor. 
Amazing. I love that. I love being able to hear all of the hellos from different languages. So speaking of Dutch, Judy. Yeah, I actually grew up in Holland. So welcome vandaag bij the podcast and groeten vanuit Shanghai. Then also because I'm in Shanghai, 欢迎大家今天来自上海的问号,欢迎大家来听我们今天的博客. Awesome. Leanne, lucky last. I thought I was like able to speak three languages already amazing, but no, I'm not. Like hearing <laughs> all these things is just like make me all feeling humble. But as I'm now in Hong Kong, I can speak a little bit of Mandarin, not at the business or native level, but I can definitely say, 你好吗? <laughs> and 大家好,大家好,早安,晚安, depending when are you going to like listen to this podcast. And in Hong Kong, uh, most of the people actually speak Cantonese. So, 大家好,欢�ng大家听,我的感觉,到,podcast. <laughs> So at Maastricht, we are a global multinational company. And while we market more or less the same products around the world, the way we sell and market them actually quite different and depending very much on the market. More and more, we see the marketing and business strategy needing to be more localized, culturally relevant and more personal. And that applies for how we do in China versus US. So we know this is important, but why? What's the biggest difference we see in rural and metro areas in Asian market like China? And what does it tell us about our consumer? In the context of China, scale really matters. So if you think about like urban hubs and especially where I'm based in Shanghai, there's 26 million people here, which is about the population of Netherlands, Belgium, and then some. So if you just think about what that means in terms of like treating a whole country as one geography versus breaking it down. And of course, we have the system of different tiers, like there's tier one, tier one and a half now, there's tier two, three, and so forth. But what we always like to think about is in spheres, perhaps, and not in tiers. So it takes much more cultural and societal factors into consideration, aside from only like GDP population or political administration. So, for example, cultural factors that are very often overlooked, but actually really, really important to understand this level of regionalism. So even beyond saying like rural or urban or more or less developed in China, the regionalism is quite strong. So, for example, having local dialect, this very much steers to what kind of online influencers are popular where, but also things such as like, you know, how hip hop culture is developing across the country. And then I think another very obvious one that is perhaps also very important or relevant for Mars Ringley is, of course, cuisines and, and the regionality of cuisines and how this impacts people's taste palates and what kind of food and beverages might be trending across. And then one of the more exciting topics I've been working on recently is to try and understand how something as intangible as regional temperament influences the development of, for example, sports culture and people's commitment into like performance and even what type of heroes they resonate with. So we think that this is really like a multi-layered approach to understanding of, yes, what is people's spending power, but also what is people's proximity to factors that kind of shape their worldview or just as simple as like what they like to eat and drink. Interesting. And Martin, I would assume very similar think because we hear a lot of people just consider Europe as one continent, like bundle it together. And at most, I think people will say like Eastern versus Western Europe. What would be your observation and what's the danger if we are just looking at in a, such a simplified way? 
I think you're totally right, Leah, not to look at it in at a monolithic way. There are indeed very large differences between Eastern Europe and Western Europe, but also between the Balkan countries and Western Europe, or between the Latin European countries, such as Italy and Spain and the North. But what is perhaps more fascinating is the differences within these markets. For instance, time and time again in every study we see, we see that there are large chunks of post-materialistic consumer cultures, more the creative self-exploratory parts of society in the Netherlands, for instance, are very similar to the same type group of people in Poland. So you have the same group of post-materialistic self-actualization types, we call them the creatives in Poland and in Spain. So these groups they have certain characteristics that are very similar. At the same time, we have groups in the Netherlands that are much more, let's say, what we would call sociability seekers, much more social, much more family-orientated, more entertainment-driven. And this group you would also see in the UK and in Sweden. Less in Eastern Europe, though. So this group, let's say, Eastern Europe and also Southern Europe is more performance-driven. And Asia, and especially China, is even more performance-driven. So you see these same groups across Europe with a few caveats. And one of the caveats is that the socializers, for instance, is almost not there. This entertainment, not performance-driven, doesn't fit Korean culture, doesn't fit Japanese culture, and doesn't fit Chinese culture. But we have this another group of consumers, which are, let's say, what we would call the achievers. And the achievers, they are very entrepreneurial, very networking, very family-orientated as well, hardcore pro-business. These are big in the UK. They're big in Eastern Europe. They're almost non-existent in the Netherlands, uh, but they're massive in China. So you see here that on one hand, there are massive differences between the countries, and yet there are similarities. So this is a little bit of very quickly, some differences and some similarities between cultures. Martin, that's so fascinating. And it it feels a little bit more like what, what you're talking to there is almost like psychographic breakdown uh, versus a more traditional simplistic breakdowns by region or by demographic even. So I'm really intrigued by that because it feels like because of that, you're almost projecting out future value systems, future social norms, future sort of innate psychographic drivers behind individual action that can influence a nation. So if you're not doing that, if you're looking at, say, East Europe, West Europe in a more simplistic way, what's the biggest risk for businesses in thinking in that more traditional way? They miss markets. First, give an example of Poland and I'll give an example for China. They would say, oh, the Polish market is so conservative. We'll never sell there. You're missing 23% of the population. That's 10 million people. Why would you not go for 10 million people? And you can use the same commercials. You can use the same, let's say, tone of voice because they have the same triggers behind them for this 23% of the population and it's 33%. So you miss markets. And at the same time, let's say in China, you will miss a certain markets. Oh, Chinese, they are extremely hardworking, but they're not into self-actualization. And you want to, let's say, set up a yoga school. And then you say, well, yes, there is still a very large part of this population that's interesting. Or you can reframe it. To give a very good example, when a new brand comes into the Chinese market, I cannot mention the name, it has a very rebellious image. Now, this doesn't fit the value profile uh, of, of Chinese because they're much more, let's say, communitarian driven. But you can reframe it as openness to creativity, which scores very high in China. You can reframe it as an openness to products from other cultures. And I say very products from other cultures, 
but not values from other cultures, which is a very subtle but extremely important difference. So China is very much open to products from other cultures. So this is how you misjudge markets and you miss opportunities by looking at cliches. Yeah, absolutely. And values from other cultures, I think that we've seen that very recently in the Chinese market. How much of that is led by history and sort of the historical social norms that have shaped the country, the country's values that we're almost really showing a lot of respect to from a heritage perspective versus what is actually being shaped by the values of today? I think that that is also a big part in that definitely is the media environment. So if we look at how social media has shaped in across the world, but then China a little bit in its own kind of silo uh, and less connected to international channels and platforms, and especially youth is very tuned in. So it becomes like a slightly different environment than even say like 10 years ago or 20 years ago when there was more of a blend of different social medias or like different type of news channels. So I think the part that is maybe historical is more about the position in China and what it means to be Chinese these days or to feel connected to a Chinese identity. Because I think that back then, a lot of the influences and a lot of the products, as Martin says, that came in, they were just better quality. They look nicer. They came in nicer packaging. So, of course, there was definitely a strong sense of admiration and wanting to spend money on those things that are higher quality and nicer looking. But then if you fast forward to today, where kind of Chinese products are making their way and in some categories have actually starting to exceed some of the global offerings. And also when you look into kind of news headlines, how China is quickly becoming like the second or if not the biggest economy in the world and is going to overtake the U.S. very soon. Obviously, that sends a message internally, but I think especially when we speak to people who are recently graduated, their level of optimism to what China's future is going to be like is extremely high. And then with that, you can see how they're proud to be from China, proud to be Chinese, proud to represent Chinese culture, and also proud to learn about some of the more like historical stories or also some of the overcoming or catching up that China has done over the past decades. And they actually feel like the pandemic is another example where things have really started to look inward. And then this sense of China's not as bad as a place and looking into the future is probably going to be even brighter. It's definitely fueling that sentiment of we don't need to always have things that are from abroad or imported. Definitely not the values maybe, but also perhaps the products can be kind of combined. We see in the data that Chinese youth are much more optimistic than Western youth. You see that there is a higher optimism amongst younger generations in China. This probably also has to do that younger generations, specifically in China, but also in Vietnam and other markets, will probably on average grow up to be richer and have more, let's say, opportunity to explore themselves than the generation before that. And in Europe, that is a big question in market. And having said that in the data, we do see in the data, GD, that Chinese are more open than others looking at products from other cultures. And it doesn't mean that they think that products from other cultures are more open, but there is a, a level of curiosity in there. And there is a way of being able to express their curiosity and express their cosmopolitanism without diving into the values. 
And I think that the appetite for experimentation is overall very high, whether it's in product or experiences or even in style. And that's definitely something that we see is like, it's a type of chameleon attitude to it. If something is interesting, let's try it first and not necessarily say yes or no to it because of where it comes from or like a certain value system. Kitty, I would love you to talk more about the tier one and tier two cities and because you have you made a very interesting comment saying that tier one city is not something that everyone wants to be or everyone wants to live in can you speak more about that yeah i think there's maybe a little opportunity to do some myth busting here i think it's oftentimes believed that with the tiering system obviously because it's numbered from one two three you always want to get to one that is kind of this race or this trajectory that everyone is just on But I think increasingly we see that mm, not all so-called lower tier cities actually aspire to become tier one or even like up the tiering system as much because they want to have become middle class and like get lifted out of poverty. But then beyond that, there's been a lot of discussion happening around, you know, the pressures of a first tier city, the stress, the 996 culture, working from 9 a.m. till 9 p.m., six days a week, that is innately becoming tied in with certain industries such as tech, but also certain first-tier cities such as Shenzhen. And as we do field work and visit these lower-tier cities and we speak to people, increasingly we feel like even amongst younger generations that they're like, we don't want that. We don't want to work as hard. We don't want to be stressed out. We don't want to sacrifice our health. But also, we don't want our city to necessarily climb that ladder because that will mean that our real estate will become more expensive, our cost of living will go up, and that they feel like they're almost kind of sacrificing so much perhaps for chasing something that might not actually bring them that much joy in life. And even from like a higher level, we see that rural urban migration has had its first decline in 2020 already. And reverse migration will also start picking up in the years to come. So the shining pearl of a first-tier city being the role model for every tier city in China, I think is coming apart or is becoming much more nuanced. Amazing. And Judy, I did want to just jump in and build on something that you mentioned, spheres, not tiers, which I love. I love that sort of deeper provocation for us in how we think about markets. So we know that the growing wealth gap is a global issue. It's relevant across all parts of the world. It's very prominent at the moment in the US, where the top 1% owns 35% of the wealth of the nation. I mean, the US has a lot of millionaires. We have 40% of the world's millionaires, and we have the highest level of income inequality amongst post-industrialized peers. In Russia, the richest 10% of Russians own 87% of the country's wealth, making it one of the most unequal of the world's major economies. But I think, you know, it's really prominently felt inside of China because China has rapidly, I mean, particularly since the opening in the 70s, pulled up hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And that is definitely something to be celebrated. And definitely what we see now is that around 10% of people in China live on a dollar per day, which is much lower than the global average and much lower than three decades ago where it was 65% living on a dollar a day. However, the inequality index is getting worse. It is growing and it's attributed to obviously a few different things. Today, the top 1% in China hold 30% of the country's wealth and that is growing. So how is that likely to influence 
dynamics, not just in the market, but inside of businesses? Yeah, that's a great context. Also, like a little bit of history and socioeconomic developments. And for anyone who has spent probably more than 10 years in China, they can really see and feel that difference, right? So even on the street level, I'm not even talking about first tier cities, but even like third tier cities, there's luxury boutiques opening up. There's massive resale markets. If you look at what the cars are that are on the streets there, I've never seen those on the streets out in the wild in Europe before. But then obviously, on the other hand, the rural areas are really falling behind in this. And my latest trip to northeast of China, very close to the Russian border, as close to the Russian border from the China side as I've been, we could see that some of the elementary schools had been replaced. Basically, they shut down because there were no more kids going to these elementary schools. So there was no need for them anymore. But instead, what moved in were these kind of local government-sponsored co-op business model fur farms. So you can see how the demand of education is going down because there's no rejuvenation in those areas anymore. So instead, through local government policy planning, they're still trying to, from a system level, to try to infuse business through like a profit share model with local communities. So what market is doing is actually pulling that gap further and further apart. But at the bottom end of it, we can see that perhaps slightly different from what my understanding is of the U.S., is that the government does try to step in at every level to at least trying to bolster or pull up also the regions that are increasingly being left behind by adding investment, whether that is in profit share models or in infrastructure. Fascinating. So on the comparison side, well, let's go to the Western part of the world, Martin. How much of that dynamic change in building people up out of poverty and closing that wealth gap are you seeing in Europe? Is it a conversation that is being pushed down from government and in common conversation or is it less of a hot topic? Oh, it is an extremely hot topic. It's not so much as being pushed down as driven up from society. What you see in society is that there is less and less tolerance for this massive wealth gap. Especially amongst the younger generation, there is a more of a willingness for a more equal society. And this is happening across the West. This wealth gap is more supported if you think that your own place in society will go up. So until quite recently, in Asia, when Asian markets are going up and there is a larger chance for you or at least your family to be better off than you are, consumers tolerate this wealth gap more. So the tolerance of this wealth gap is probably bigger in many Asian countries, but probably getting smaller. And the Chinese government is looking ahead and seeing this as a question mark for the stability of the nation which makes all the sense in the world because this is something that destabilizes nations. And it's destabilizing the West. You can see it constantly becoming more of a political topic in the West. And we see that in the data, especially among young people, they want to have a more of an equal society. That's a beautiful segue to talking a little bit more about those generational differences and young people specifically. 
And particularly when we're talking about young people, we know that they're looking at their career path in a slightly different way than their prior generations. And we know that, you know, one thing that really lifts people into a higher wealth bracket is not just a higher income, but diversification of their income and also asset ownership. And I think that's one of the things that's really exciting about Gen Z is that they're thinking about content creation and gig economy and finding their income in diverse ways where they have more control and more power and therefore are almost in charge or, you know, fueled by their own desire to grow their income themselves. So it's a really fascinating shift that we're seeing. What is one of the things that you're seeing in the European markets or the Western markets for Gen Z that's unique versus the Eastern markets? So Gen Z, and which is very fascinating about Gen Z, is one that the differences within this generation are larger than the differences between this generation. So if you look at all the values and all the lifestyle, and we measure this, you see that the differences between the generations are smaller than the differences within a generation. For instance, you can look at this, what we mentioned, because this creates this self-actualization type of consumer, which is has all these age groups in it. You have this work hard, live hard, which is indeed younger, but there's still also other generations in there as well. So as a first remark is that the Gen Z is basically all over the place and they're very different. What we do see in Europe is that there is a larger drive for equality, what we just mentioned, and two, also a larger drive for gender role flexibility and a less acceptance of the patriarchy. And this is really strong within the Gen Z. This could indeed mean that they are more flexible also in how they structure their life. And this means also their work. It could also mean that they have less opportunity. Many of the young people stuck in the gig economy do so out of their own free will. Some are forced into it, if you want to call it that way, through circumstances. I think there are people called Gen Z as the digital savvy generation rather than give them a name to represent the years that they were born. So I think um, digital definitely shaped our life. And talking about that, we know that China has been growing like tremendously over the past few decades. And I think we've seen that um, thinking about the economic growth and the, and the environments that everyone was experiencing, does it create a very different context for different generations, hence the different hence the differences between generations is more prominent in China? Yeah, we get asked a lot of kind of generational insights type of questions. I think the things that sometimes get conflated is where general generational insights are more actually life stage insights. So whether it's young people, they're more rebellious or they're more self-centered. I think it's more about like adolescence and perhaps, you know, exploring your own identity after you've graduated and having that independence from your parents. But then obviously the larger backdrop in which this kind of plays out is different. There is also what is a good thing to separate out is lifestyle and values. So when you look at lifestyles, indeed, this is very much generational values less so and values are formed around let's say between your 16th and and then your 22nd years of age so when you really start thinking about the world and what is my role in the world and and how do i look at it and these value patterns actually don't change that much over your life and this is why you see very progressive types of people that are in their 60s uh, and they grow up in what we would call the cultural 60s, the 68, 72 period of life when everything was wild, was liberal for a certain group of people. And this certain group of people, they became the rockers, they became the hippies and they didn't change that much their values. They changed their lifestyle a bit, 
when they grow old in value. So you see that in the West, at least, you have large chunks of society that are more progressive and liberal than the chunks of society that are younger and that come after them can be more conservative. This difference you see less in Asia. In Asia, let's say, you still see it. But in Asia, let's say, the more liberal, progressive parts of society tend to be younger, which is not in the case for in the Netherlands, for instance. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point. And and the only thing I would add to that is that depending on who you are and what media preferences you have, that overall, I would say like international media currently has a massive bias towards kind of more progressive values and movements exactly. and highlighting those. And I think that this is sometimes a bit of a trap to fall into if you subscribe to that narrative, because when we speak to people, we speak to very progressive ones, but we also speak to people who are indeed, as Martin says, growing up in the same environment, they're, they're watching the same things, they're consuming the same things, but actually their values at a core are perhaps quite traditional, but they also don't necessarily always feel like that there's a room to voice out their more traditional or conservative values. And I think if you Aside from just saying like Asia versus Europe or versus the US, but I think if you go into the Middle East or even go into like North Africa or the whole of Africa, that the blend and the massive spectrum of acceptance of progressive mindsets or wanting to push that is perhaps like many, many more shades of gray rather than only like, you know, Gen Z is so progressive and they want to throw away gender, they want to throw away all these like kind of notions that are oftentimes like very much celebrated by international media. So the media journalists have a certain liberal progressive background. I mean, this, this is a fact. So perhaps it's influences them. But get this, marketeers and movie makers and people working in the ad industry also have this liberal view of looking at this so we would call them creatives like this 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 part of society and these are also the main part of the marketeers we know this because we have tested this amongst marketeers so you have this myopia that we all have that marketeers like to look at these trends because at least in the west that's, this is who we are it's much easier to sell to somebody like us it's much easier to sell to a person that is similar to us. So to build on this point, it's not only in the, the media, it's also amongst marketeers and agencies, at least in the West. So one thing that really sticks with me is, you know, when I think about Western and Eastern philosophies and these maybe slightly traditional, simple definitions of those, where you're talking about essentially the virtues that exist within them, which are both virtues, but on the one hand, you have collectivism. On the other, you have individualism. Traditionally, we would think individualism is where you see the majority of innovation and innovative privatized thinking come. But that's not the case in China. In China, we see actually the, the Chinese market has fantastic innovation pace of change and investment. It's not one of the highest markets for innovation in the world, but it certainly is when we think about technology and the finance sector, actually. How much of a, a shift in investment in innovation are you starting to see inside of the Chinese market where it is driven by private organization and that's being balanced with this collectivist norm that lives inside of the country? 
Yeah, I think that there's something a uh, great nugget to pull forward from what we just talked about in terms of the wealth gap, right? It's like the wealth gap on the top and a lot of people got very wealthy over the past decades in China. So how are they spending their money is not just on luxury goods and cars. It's actually a lot of them is investing that back into the market or Perhaps we have this term here called fu er dai, like the rich second generation, the kids basically of the self-made man coming out of the China dream or whatnot. But they actually have quite a lot of financial capabilities to launch their own businesses or to invest in businesses that they believe in. And then that collectivism sometimes of the networks, like the families, and sometimes even in some provinces more like on a tribal level even, that they would kind of stick together and push through different business ideas. And I think that this is something that is almost like kind of across generation, we see that um, desire for entrepreneurialism cutting across. But then obviously in today's like kind of economic, socioeconomic backdrop, the chances of launching something and getting something off the ground is much higher or it's like much easier to find investment. So we think here that really like, like tech innovation, there's a lot that has been learned from the U.S. There's a lot that has been learned from like, you know, China being the manufacturer of the world. But then now that all of that, the, the manufacturing capabilities are there, the close proximity to production and consumers helps actually focus the speed and accelerate the pace of innovation even more. Definitely the progress that we've seen so far in innovative businesses is is definitely, you know, very, very, very visible. And China and the US have the highest number of unicorns worldwide, which is definitely a positive sign when we're talking about startups. However, surprisingly, potentially, the most active region for startups is Latin America. So we're starting to see these pockets of innovation coming from perhaps surprising places. And actually, probably what surprised me the most was when you look at the Global Innovation Index, Martin, Switzerland is number one, and it has been number one for a really long time. So how is innovation and pace of change in innovation inside of the European or the Western markets evolving from what you're saying? Traditionally, uh, when I look at Europe, until, let's say, 20, 30 years ago, we would have more innovative companies. We would have more, let's say, new companies being born. And if I look at the amount of new companies now being formed in Europe, the impression I get is that it's lagging behind. There are, of course, hubs of innovation, uh, especially tech uh, around London, Amsterdam, Stockholm. So it's there. I think this is a big issue for Europe, actually. There is a lack of innovation and there's a lack of innovation support. I think this also has to do with the mentality that failure is being frowned upon harder. It's easier to fail in other markets than it's to fail in Europe, where also the legislation doesn't really help. If you go into bankruptcy, that's much tougher in Europe than, for instance, in the US. The suggestion that innovation is tied to individuality, or perhaps it's not. We haven't seen any data as well that this is true. And you see actually many more, let's say, collectivistic societies now excelling in the innovation. So perhaps this vision that we have that innovation is tied to individuality is a wrong assumption that we have.
I think that there's another lens into innovation that we see, which is kind of more from corporates or from brands, their own kind of innovation capabilities. And especially in China, we really see that the speed of these innovation pipelines are really accelerating and becoming so much faster and that they need to be competitive, both in that speed and versatility. So the process of getting there is also one of like kind of a multi-tracked approach that we're seeing here is like almost launching multiple brands, multiple sub-brands, multiple SKUs at the same time and do that with kind of small scale like regional pilots, see which one sticks, develop those further, optimize those further, but also discontinue the rest. And this maybe links to like uh, Martin's point about the acceptance of failure or even like just being not too precious about perfection, whether it's about the perfection of the product or whether it's about perfection of that process. And you can see that these brands are very quickly growing momentum. So where policy regulations and regional investment aids still kind of determine these winners and losers in key industries. But then when we look at consumer products, especially industries like food and beverages, apparel, pets, also booming here, we can see that these young startups from these new generation of Chinese entrepreneurs are actually really interesting and becoming quite desirable. So when you think about East and West futures out to the next 10 years, what is the one large common factor that you can think of for all parts of the world that you will think will influence the future? We are always looking for better options or better solution or convenience. It could be a thing. So technology can definitely play a role there. So I think the advancement for me, the advancement in technology in improving people's lives will be really one common thing that we can see across the world. So for me, I think when I'm looking across the world and I think the point that you both touched on before is really important around the divisiveness that's happening. When we think about inside of the US, there's this divisiveness, the liberal media, conservative media, different mindsets. It's a really interesting thing to experience firsthand now living in the US. You can see that in other parts of the world, this good versus bad, simple labels that we put on different markets, whether it's because of their political party or their leaning or whether it's about these stereotypes that we have. I think for me, the thing that I find is bringing all of that together is empathy. So we know that empathy is a very big topic of conversation at the moment. For me, it's really linked into the core values that live inside of all markets in the world, which is around respect. And when we're talking about things like inclusivity and diverse perspectives, I think all of that is still a living at the, the very heart of common respect for human beings. So trying to find those commonalities through the thread of empathy is definitely something that I'm hoping that continues and expands as we're looking towards the next decade. So the value of friendship scores high across religions, across uh, geography. So there is something like a universal value of fr friendship. And you call it empathy, and we call it friendship. So having said that, this doesn't mean, in my opinion, that we're going to a better place. We see this larger cultural divide driving deeper. There are many people say, hey, let's fight this cultural divide. Yes, but it's still being driven deeper. I see no, let's say, large movements or trends to bridge this gap. This gap is, let's say, conservative, liberal, rural, perhaps it's better even rural, metropolitan in the US. So you see this difference within countries becoming bigger. On the more positive side, you see differences between countries becoming smaller. 
So this big paradox that internationally, it looks like we're growing together, but within each culture, we're growing apart. So yes, there is a room for empathy and values in getting together. The data doesn't show it yet. On the good side, internationally, we're culturally growing together. I do think that what the commonality is across East or West or different markets and especially leading into the future is this multiplicity. Whether or not people like it, whether or not people can get along, I think the multi-track nature of development is just going to even fork more and sprout into more roots, right? So whether that is the blending of cultures, we see it now with ethnicity, we just see that there is just like kind of more voices that are out there. But to me, it's almost not really a question of, is it going to be like that? Because I think the answer is that it will be. The answer is that it's already happening and it will be about figuring out more of the coexistence. But I think at the end of the day, if you pull that point all the way forward, the fragmentation of all of that in real life, but also let's not forget the development of like in the metaverse as well, that you don't necessarily all need to be in the same room anymore with each other to be able to live your own truths and your own values. And increasingly, there's more spaces in which you can design those communities, design like-minded people, and even design all kinds of alternative financial structures around that to be able to live and celebrate the way that you see fit individually or collectively. Leanne, between the two of us, we've lived in five continents. We've seen firsthand how everything from day-to-day living to brand successes and failures look from different parts of the world. Yeah, it's such a great experience to travel to opposite ends of the world and see how life is like on the other side and true simple curiosity that can be found from anywhere in the world. What's really striking for me is that even though we brought Martin and JD in to give their perspective on East and West, they both can confidently dive into global topics and explore contrasts and commonality across both Western and Eastern value. John Steinbeck in East of Eden, when he wrote about simple labels, the misconceptions and myths about American rural life, asked a really important question. Can it be that our critics have not the key or the language of our culture? When we talk about getting to a robust business plan, it's important, like Martin and Judy mentioned throughout the episode, for us to take a second look, to unlock the human truths behind simple definitions, to remain curious and not just critical. Yeah, and the context is so important. Context shape value system of culture. The decade ahead, like Martin and JD said, will be filled with more reasons to divide us than to bring us together. So we are likely to see more tension, more division, but also more progress, more innovative, imaginative thinking. It's important for us to consider how we as a business leader and marketer can develop stronger, more resilient business strategies. A thing past simple label to bust more myths like we did today. And to project ahead to both the breaking point and the point where we'll need to find a way to, like Judy said, coexist. Whether you do this by looking at differences and contrasts or whether you do this by looking for the commonalities, the only failure would be in not looking. So keep looking. Until next time, this is Joe, And this is Leanne. 
Stay curious. If you enjoy our show, be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player so you don't miss new episodes. And if you can, a five-star Apple review goes a long way to help us connect with other curious thinkers like yourself, and we really appreciate it. The views expressed on this podcast are that of the show's creators, the foresight leaders within Mars Wrigley, and don't necessarily reflect the views of Mars or other employers. Future Imagined is a production of Stories Bureau, produced by Elisa Manjares, with editing and sound design by Matha de Leon. <laughs>